Hello, welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour, brought to you by the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies and the Graduate School for Public International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm your host, Adam Dietrich. Since this is our first episode, I'm going to give you a little introduction to who we are. The Ridgeway Security Hour is a monthly podcast exploring issues in international security and featuring a deep dive interview with our special guest expert. Today, our discussions will be informed by a rotating panel of Ridgeway scholars, and later I'll be introducing our guest, Dr. Colin Clark. Let me introduce our panel. Uh, we have Lee Margot. Adam, how are you doing today? Great to be here. Shannon Keyes. Hi. And Paul Wheeler. It's great to be here. All right, guys. First topic up for discussion is the uh, Hong Kong protests. Anyone familiar with this want to start us off? Yeah, so I guess the chief executive, uh, Miss Carrie Lam, is... Uh, not having not been having a good month or so. No, no. Uh, the protests uh, were born out of this like infamous extradition bill, and but it's really involved in this like full fledged like pro democracy movement. Like, what does this mean for the future of Hong Kong and its relationship with Beijing? It, I guess it's unsure because uh, right now, I I mean, it's not the first time that uh, these that protests have, on this scale have happened in Hong Kong. I think back in 2014, if we can remember. Yeah, that was the uh, umbrella protest. Yeah, sort of along, I believe, similar lines, sort of about pro-democracy, free speech. And this has kind of uh, manifested itself from opposition to a the uh, extradition. Yeah, the extradition bill uh, that has been seen as a major encroachment on Hong Kong's uh, sovereignty. Well, the background with that is the extradition bill is seen as legalizing what has been a problem for Hong Kong sometimes, which is uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party kidnapping dissidents in Hong Kong and bringing them back to the mainland to be uh, tortured and taken care of it and whatever. There's been uh, numerous cases of different publishers and booksellers and things. So when this bill was introduced to solve a real problem, of uh, for, for those listeners that don't know, the impetus of this was a uh, Hong Kong citizen murdered his wife in Taiwan yes. and then came back to Hong Kong was like, you can't touch me. So there, there is a, there was an initial concern and the mainland had to be included because according to China, Taiwan is part of China. So Hong Kong can't have a separate extradition bill with part of China than from mainland China, but it's really kind of roiled up and, and evolved into this own thing. The last time, uh, well, I'm just on a roll here. The last time you were talking about 2014 with the umbrella protest was when to bring in nationalist education to Hong Kong, which is why the umbrella protest was largely started by students who felt that they were impinging on uh, their education and also their identity because most Hong Kong uh, Hong Kongers consider themselves more residents of Hong Kong than citizens of China. Yeah, you're, I'm glad you bring that up because what we're really seeing here, I think, is. Uh... Yeah, you have a lot of young people who are understanding that they're, you know, the, the Hong Kong they know and they understand is being democratic and separate from the rest of China. Like, that's going to come to an end soon when the treaty expires, I think, in 2047. Yeah. So they're very well aware that the, their life as they know it will come to an end within their lifetime, and it's coming up quick. Uh, so I think that's an impetus for a lot of this, um, you know, a, a lot of this energy that you're seeing. You know, it's not just, you know, this crime bill. It's what, or excuse me, this extradition treaty. It's what does... What does Hong Kong look like in the next few years? You know, are, is this the beginning of China kind of, you know, 
regain or regain that control and what does that look like for people who live there yeah it's interesting you brought the tree i think when the handover initially took place the idea was that hong kong was going to make china more like hong kong and that the idea that the the economic gains and the economic system was also going to bring democracy and more of these values and it's actually kind of while some aspects that's true uh China has become more capitalist and the, the capitalist like economic sense has made it very profitable. More people have come out of poverty than ever due to the rise of China. But those other parts didn't really happen. And now we're seeing uh, a clash there between Hong Kong and uh, China is like, what direction should the island go? Free, free markets, not free people. Exactly. Well put. Since this is an international security based podcast, I'm, I'm going to ask, like, what implications do you think what does this mean for China's relationship with the rest of the world? We're, we're seeing these kind of cracks in the, maybe not the American view, but the world view that China's doing very well for itself, extremely wealthy, and it might be something to emulate. What does Hong Kong protests say about that? I think the question is, you know, is anybody willing to do anything about it? And what, you know, well, I mean, there you know, was what the, can you do? Short of shaming them, which they don't seem to you know, care terribly much about well, no one's saying that Hong Kong's Berlin and the U.S. needs to defend it. But, I mean, it's like there's concerns of the, you know, there was the 1989 crackdown in Tiananmen. Like, what would we mean if we saw that today? Like, what should the response be by the United States and the international community? Well, I think if anything that we could uh, pull examples from is that what we've seen is any of these international crises that happen, like Tiananmen, is just uh, across the board international condemnation. But, I mean, China in the past 20 or so years has been uh, a rising power, very active. We've seen a lot of uh, initiatives like the Belt and Road, uh, Made in China 2025, uh, kind of stepping up to the stage as a uh, geopolitical force uh, on the international scene. And uh, a lot of countries might be very reluctant to speak out against uh, China because they receive a lot of money from them. So... That might be different this time around if something like a Tiananmen Square were to happen. So you're saying that due to China's economic status, there's probably not going to be much recoil? Probably. Interesting. Specifically with, um, I think, smaller countries as well that rely, that are in China's, um, like, kind of geopolitical sphere that kind of rely on their um, economics, that their country, their, their country's economics rely heavily on China. Um, so I feel like getting a large um, international condemnation of it would be hard with that part. I think with Hong Kong being such a financial center and a global city, like mm-hmm. there are actual ramifications you need to think about if anything were to happen to Hong Kong that we might not think about if it was a Tiananmen Square type situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't know what that response looks like. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you uh, mentioned that, Paul, because uh, China is actually, I guess what we could maybe equate uh, to is its own sort of economic sanctions is that uh, many companies operating in Hong Kong who might be sympathetic to these protests, we've seen uh, that they actually have maybe put like uh, some sort of equivalent to sanctions on these various companies and firms that are operating in Hong Kong. And it might not be out of the question that down the line, maybe other international companies that may not be Chinese or within that sort of sphere of influence to maybe see something uh, similar, like maybe a takeover of their uh, sort of investments in China could be something we see if they offer some sort of material or uh, encouragement to the Chinese, uh, I mean, to protest in Hong Kong. 
I think another thing to touch on is one, why is this particular protest different than what we've seen maybe before? Is because I don't necessarily know if this might like fizzle out potentially. Who knows? Does it have legs to become maybe a broader movement uh, to maybe separate from China, which is pretty unlikely at this point in time? I mean, you can call it that, but a lot of people within the uh, protests see, see it as their last leg. They feel if Beijing has the ability to extract people who are breaking Beijing's laws in terms of like things that they don't have protections for free speech and whatnot. Uh, that this is their last chance to, to get out. Uh, but you're, you're right. They're, they're, the call of separation or anything like that is still a very much a minority and not part of it. The, the handover was an international agreement. Uh, it, isn't, it is something that you know, there are other stakeholders involved with. And that kind of makes this not an entirely domestic issue. For China to deal with. I mean, if we might run to like what what, what he was saying about whether or not this will fizzle out. Um, I wish I could remember where I read it, and I feel terrible. I can't credit them, but um, I read an article that made a very good point that many of these protesters may kind of feel like their backs are against the wall now at this point. You know, the impetus for them not fizzle out and keep going. Maybe that if this extradition treaty does go through, they're probably going to be the first people on the list that will get you know potentially brought to China for protesting because they're not. The government isn't calling it protesting, they're calling it rioting, which is a crime, and could you know very much lead to actual jail time for some of these people. A definite reason why most of these protesters are covering their faces. We yeah. know that China has heavily invested in surveillance technologies and AI face re- reading abilities and so on and so forth. Yeah, so I think uh, I think that gives us a little bit more mo- more momentum, me, momentum um, compared to uh, lat- uh, previous protests. So we shall see. Yeah, I also think um, I don't know about the the future of the movement is kind of shaky because right now um, the movement is kind of leaderless in a way um, and not everyone wants the same thing. Um, like big picture, yeah, small picture, um, they don't have like the same goals. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that's what we were just talking about. There, yeah. there are those that, you know, like the arrangement. There, there, mm-hmm. there are separate, separatist voices, mm-hmm. absolutely. And yeah. there's definitely a clash between those that are, that are protesting and the kind of more fringe element that are committing more of the vandalism acts yeah. that we're that seeing. hinders the whole entire process of it, so... I mean, the yeah. question is, could these Hong Kong protests, like, can they succeed without any external support or voices? Right. yeah. And we don't have an answer to that. All right. Lots of high notes in this <laughs> podcast. All right, we're, we're going to move on to our second topic uh, which is the kind of the future of arms control and the relationship between the United States and Russia more broadly. So, as we all know, the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty came to an end recently with the United States finally putting the final nail in that coffin that we no longer abide. So, to what extent was that end of the INF inevitable? Or, or was it just very foolish to the United States to throw the baby out with the bathwater because Russia was not abiding by the treaty. To be generous, I think, um, with the way things are now, you know, Russia is not our only nuclear rival anymore. China is as well. So you you do wonder, would we have been limiting ourselves by you know, being compliant with that when there's decent evidence that Russia was not complying um, and we now have to worry about a rising China who's also heavily invested in their own uh, military and their own technologies. So does that mean throwing it out? I don't know. Does that mean reframing it to include them? Um, it's 
you know, I guess it's a moot point now because it's gone, but you, but you do wonder, could it continue the way it did, knowing that, um, you know, Russia was cheating, and then we're going to have to with China, who wasn't part of that treaty to begin with. So the argument with China, that, that can apply to, to New START as well. New START is still between the United States and Russia, and yeah. that is up in 2021. So what is, does the INF signal a trend that New START's also going to go away? We're going to go back to nuclear anarchy without these controls? Like, what, what's happening here? Um, I don't, I, I think it's too early to say nuclear anarchy. Um, it's a good band name. I, I, yes. <laughs> um, but I think that, at least with the, um, if we look back to the Iron Man nuclear deal, I think it was kind of, in a way, predictable with the way the U.S. has handled that and how they would handle the INF treaty and how they're going to handle future treaties um, in that regard. Um, so none of them are going to work? I don't, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that um, I think we're seeing a new era and a new trend of, you know, these ones just not working out. We have to realign what we're doing because um, with just regarding China and Iran, like Russia didn't comply with the INF because of the rising threat of Chinese um, nuclear powers. Um, and if no one's complying, then... I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't have anything because we should. Is, is it because there's no, like, looming threat as much these days? We think, oh, it, you know, if people don't abide by these treaties, we're not imminently going to go to war. There's not imminently going to be this huge problem. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of figure it out in the meantime. I mean, these states might be able to, might see these treaties as very constricting to their security. I mean, it's been what how many like a few decades since all these treaties have been ratified and signed well, it, and we've seen the exception of new start which was yeah. 2011. thank you for correcting me <laughs> but we've seen <clears throat> exponential technological growth at a level we've never seen before and maybe they see these treaties as potentially being uh, constricting to their sort of security interests but i think it is a broader level is that uh, what I potentially see is that we're starting to plant the seeds to uh, coming back to nuclear proliferation around the globe. I mean, you've seen it on the uh, the rhetoric and in the actions, what you could potentially say with the current administration is that our president was talking about in 2016 that he'd be okay with Japan uh, getting their own nuclear weapons and states being on their own for sort of security interests and whatnot. So. This might just be the manifestation of that desire or interest as now fulfilled policy is that now we're just going to sort of let nuclear weapons proliferate. And we've kind of been seeing that, I mean, potentially with North Korea is that there hasn't, yeah, there's been dialogue, but hasn't really been any solid policy that we've seen there, uh, sort of with Iran. I mean, yeah, the JCPOA was sort of a... I, I guess you could say that as a sort of arms treaty, in a way. I mean, throwing it out the window is kind of counterintuitive to uh, defending or preventing nuclear proliferation, and now we've seen it with the INF. Are you seeing it as like a shifted focus or a full-on strategy? I like think the US thinks they can compete better in like an open market of weapons. I see it more as just like playing seeds to a trend of just uh, greater nuclear proliferation as now we're another arms race, potentially. Well, let's talk about that arms race a little bit. Not quite a full segue, but there was a recent explosion at a Russian test facility in which the uh, what's been dubbed by the NATO officers the, the Skyfall missile, which was a nuclear-powered cruise missile 
uh, exploded. Uh, and we, we can skip over all the uh, timing that that comes out with the Chernobyl po- uh, podcast and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, what does this mean for, for, for Russia's ambitions and expanding its uh, global presence? And this whole arms race with the INF kind of kicked off with Russia announcing the Skyfall missile along with the Poseidon drone, which is actually really interesting. Uh, but like, was this started on a false premise? Like, can Russia even do what it was trying to do? Did we throw away the INF out of fear of weapons that aren't actually viable at this point? That's, I think that's a good point. Um, I think at least um, with Russia, uh, well, I mean, with any um, nuclear weapon, I think it's it's a show of power almost as it is as protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Russia, I think, especially with this explosion there, um, rush to kind of show that they can beat the U.S. in certain, um, like, I don't know all the technical terms, but, like, certain, like, you know, just... Right, technological development. Like, this exploded, and the president tweeted, the U.S. has the same technology, but bigger and better. Right. I mean, actually, like, we haven't really experimented with this kind of cruise missile technology since the Mm -hmm. 50s. And I think it's detrimental also to the population of Russia as well. Um, Just... um, because I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's mainly just a power move, and it's um, it doesn't look good for them. But I think they're going to take that and spin that and like, try to make it like it's going. So, so you would say that this really hasn't been much of a much of a stop for, for Putin's quest of expanding the profile of the, of the Russian military. Correct. All right, uh, and now on to our, our final, what will probably be a recurring topic: the state of Afghanistan and what what's going on there. Uh, there's a recent New York Times article that talked about an internal debate within the national security apparatus, uh, particularly between the, the U.S. military and the intelligence community, about how much danger the local ISIS affiliate, ISKP, had. Uh, the, the Pentagon feels that it's taking root and would provide a, a training ground to go out and commit international acts of terrorism, similar to what the caliphate played in Syria kind of seen that conversation change uh, since the past weekend and the bombings that occurred by ISIS uh, in Afghanistan. So what does this, I'm, I'm just going to open that up. Like, wh- what does this mean for the future U.S. role in Afghanistan? According to a United Nations publication, and I forget the name of the publication, um, but the Islamic State's core group um, kind of, of Iraq and Syria like consistently relied on the faction in Afghanistan to coordinate um, some of their relocation efforts. And most of their um, foreign fighters um, from Iraq and Syria have been fleeing mainly to the Sinai and to Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is now becoming, um, from this uh, publication, kind of more of a hub um, for relocation since they have been fleeing from Iraq and Syria. Um, I think that regarding American involvement, I think that um, specifically with the peace talks um, with the Taliban, um, full removal would not bode well um, with... Full removal of U.S. troops. Uh, correct, yeah. Full removal of U.S. troops would not bode well, um, specifically with giving all the pa- um, power over to to the Taliban, um, especially um, with the Taliban, parts of the Taliban breaking off um, into um, the fact faction of ISIS, I guess. Oh, I, I Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really interesting. Uh, to what extent will IS be a, be a spoiler yeah. uh, in yes. these peace talks? Because that, that's one of the debates right now is what U.S. role would remain. I know an earlier rejected idea 
was most U.S. troops would leave, but yes. the counterterrorism troops would remain. Yes. Uh, and other uh, NATO allies would be the ones doing the uh, train mm-hmm. advise and assist missions. But right now, I mean, any U.S. troop presence seems to be a real sticking point. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it raises a question like, you know, is that, is, is a full withdrawal even an option? Because you would right. think that, you know, if ISIS is there, we would want to do something about it. You know, so this idea that we can, you know, just bail and, you know, just ignore that problem, I'm, I'm not confident that's going to, I'm not confident that full withdrawal is really tenable or long-lasting so long as, like, there is a presence there, because eventually, you know, they're going to have a high enough profile that we're going to do something about it. But there seems to be a lot of uh, political will domestically in the United States for a full withdrawal. Uh, I mean, President Trump has frequently said that he wants the troops out, and that's kind of seems to be the direction they're trying to make happen. And you aren't getting, if anything, you're getting a more vehement response from most of the Democratic candidates saying that the war in Afghanistan has to end within their first term. Right. I think that's ambitious and something, obviously, all of us would like to see. But realistically, um, I think at least at the base, basic level, counterterrorism officials have to stay there. Um, it would be it would just lead us backwards in terms of progress with squashing the Islamic State ideology as much as we can. Right. I mean, yeah. Afghanistan being a terrorist training ground was the initial impetus of the whole invasion in the first place. All right, now it's time to introduce our guest. We have Dr. Colin Clark here. He spent 10 years as an associate political scientist at RAND. Now he teaches at Carnegie Mellon University, contributor on various publications such as Foreign Policy and Foreign Affairs, and is the author of Terrorism, Inc., and most recently, After the Caliphate. Uh, Colin, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, now let's start off with an easy one. Uh, has ISIS been defeated? Uh, clearly not. Uh, I think uh, despite what President Trump has said, uh, over the past several months, I mean, that was contradicted most recently by his own Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, who was on the Sunday talk shows this weekend, uh, and essentially admitted that the Islamic State has made a comeback, not only in Iraq and Syria, but that there's affiliate and franchise groups uh, scattered abroad that still pose a pretty significant threat, uh, evidenced by the ISKP attack in Afghanistan against a Shia wedding most recently. Yeah, as we previously discussed slightly in our interview portion, we talked about there was a kind of a debate within the national security apparatus between the army, which felt that ISIS was a growing threat within Afghanistan, including for projection of terrorism, versus uh, the intelligence community, which felt that it wasn't a reason to stay there. Do you have any kind of comment on how these new attacks influence how we see ISIS in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I saw that same debate, um, which is interesting to see that taking place in the public domain. Um, yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. One, um, you know, curious to know why uh, such a difference of opinion. Uh, just because ISKP has not launched any kind of external attacks doesn't mean that they're not capable of it. Um, so what we're seeing now could be just uh, more, more related to uh, their own objectives in Afghanistan proper. The other is, you know, what I think is on everybody's mind right now, which is what happens next if the United States proceeds with a deal with the Taliban uh, and begins withdrawing troops in earnest. Um, I'm hearing all sorts of rumors, but uh, one of the things I've heard is that the U.S. is going to agree to pull all of its troops, 14,000 troops from Afghanistan uh, by early 2020. And if that's the case, um, you're, you're talking about a safe haven or a sanctuary in Afghanistan that could very well develop into a launch pad 
for international terrorism once again. Absolutely. Uh, so right now there, there's several different kind of like brandings of what uh, international terrorism is. Like you have Al Qaeda, you have IS. Do you see these groups tending towards like cooperation or conflict with each other? You know, it's a good question. I think certainly at the leadership or strategic level, um, I don't see a possibility for rapprochement. I think the, the debates are, are, are so bitter. I question whether that holds true at the kind of mid-level commander or foot soldier level. I'm just not sure how ideologically inclined uh, people at that level are. And so you could see some, some changing back and forth, particularly if there is a deal cut. Uh, you could see hardline elements within the Taliban that are unhappy with that potentially shifting over to IS and kind of bolstering the ISKP presence. Some have pegged that at around between two and 3,000. Um, you know, could an influx of an additional two or 3,000 Taliban fighters really make it a more formidable threat in Afghanistan? Probably. You, we've talked about uh, the U.S. And, the ally, and its allies kind of debating whether to greatly reduce or abandon its role of counterinsurgency and, and counterterrorism in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. In Syria, what does this mean for the narrative of these jihadist groups that have really bolstered themselves under the global war on terror to fight the Western imperialists? Like, does that really change how they can recruit if, say, U.S. troops are not present overseas in these countries? Yeah, I think in, in many ways it does. If you think back to the early 90s in Somalia uh, with the Black Hawk Down incident, the way that al-Qaeda framed that was essentially the U.S. as a paper tiger. Uh, that you have to kill a, a handful of U.S. soldiers and the U.S. will pack up and go home. Um, you know, this is a different scenario because we've been at war in Afghanistan for nearly two decades um, and have still been unable to defeat the, the Taliban, even with, you know, air dominance and all the other advantages that the U.S. military enjoys. Uh, and so I think this will be framed, at least in jihadi propaganda, uh, as, a, as a victory. Um, and that, in turn, will only kind of improve morale within the global jihadist movement writ large. And I think certainly bolster recruitment efforts, uh, not only online, but I think in, uh, in the physical world as well. You focus in your book on the dangers of the dissemination of jihadists uh, from Iraq and Syria as those conflicts kind of dwindle down and how they can have a radicalizing influence. Uh, is there a model out there that, that we can look at that, that's useful in, in dealing with that? No, I mean, I think that's what makes it so difficult is that there isn't a model. Um, and when we talk about issues like radicalization, that there is no typology or one-size-fits-all approach to the type of people that are attracted, right? We have this kind of general notion that, you know, it's disenfranchised young Muslims that, uh, particularly in Europe, maybe don't feel uh, like they're French, but they also don't feel Algerian and they kind of exist in this netherworld, right, that makes them vulnerable to uh, to recruitment, and, and it doesn't have to be just France. I mean, it could be Pakistanis in the UK, or you know, people of Moroccan descent in, in Belgium, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I think that's what we've seen. We've also seen the Islamic State doing a really good job of recruiting from what I call the criminal underworld, right? Kind of bolstering this notion of a crime terror nexus. Um, they even had a deliberate recruitment campaign where they had posters that said, "Sometimes the worst pasts make the best futures." And essentially, we're appealing uh, through religion to say, you know, if you've led this life of sin, whether it was drugs, crime, premarital sex, what have you, you can kind of, uh, you know, you can uh, prove yourself once again um, by committing to the Islamic State. Um, and a lot of people bought into that. If we look at that path, you look at the global war on terror as a model for how counterterrorism is thought. Um, today in 2019, you could say that's been seriously questioned as a model of like, 
how to get things done, particularly with ISIS expanding. Where do we go from here? Yeah, so I've actually got a piece that uh, I've, I've just completed and will probably be out in the next couple of days in Slate. And it actually looks at Chinese counterterrorism. And in the piece, I talk about how the, the Chinese have adopted some of the language from the global war on terrorism for their own purposes and what the implications of that are. So we're all aware of what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs in, in northwest China, you know, keeping them in concentration camps which they call vocational training centers, um, and really just uh, you know, uh, in, intense surveillance of an ethnic minority. Well, they justify that by saying these are terrorists, right? We've seen similar language employed this last week in the protests in Hong Kong. We're fighting terrorists. These are clearly demonstrators or protesters, but they use terrorism as a catch-all uh, to, to apply this broad brush and say, you know, this justifies the use of force, this justifies draconian security measures, and look, we're with you guys, Washington. Look, we also have a terrorism problem. The Russians do the same thing, and they, they've done this uh, in the Caucasus as well, where they try to put themselves on the same level as us and say, yeah, we all have this counterterrorism issue, um, even though we have very little in, in, in common with uh, the Russians and the Chinese, particularly in terms of uh, how those, those countries have no respect for human rights. Yeah, it's almost as if uh, America's moral center of the world, even when we slip from that that still holds and it can be used to just that language can be used to justify and they can just point back to America, but Americans say this all the time. So no, but and, and frankly, I've never been a fan of the term global war on terrorism. It's never made much sense to me to declare a war on a tactic. Uh, but in the U S we, you know, we like declaring war on things, right? The war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on gluten, um, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever other silly thing we come up with. Uh, but these are open-ended, right? So tell me, so is the war on drugs over? Because last time I checked, you know, we had an opioid crisis in this country, even though we've been fighting this so-called war for decades, right? What about the war on poverty? Uh, we've got a greater wealth disparity now than we've ever had. So does anyone think the war on terrorism will, will be over? Uh, you know, what, what's the, how do you win, right? What, the goalposts constantly shift. Um, and we've seen things like the authoriz authorization for the use of military force, the UIMF used to justify any number of uh, overseas incursions and you know people are concerned that that could be applied uh, to you know conflict with Iran um, yeah. you know and so I think it you have to define your enemy and saying we're at war with terrorism makes very little sense to me because are we concerned about FARC the same way we're concerned about Al-Qaeda obviously not right um, so I think we need to do a better job with with language and lexicon because I think it does matter yeah, AUMF is very interesting because every all these presidential candidates always come out and say, oh, no, I wouldn't like that. Barack Obama just said the same thing. But then when they get there, presidents are very unlikely to put a tool back in the tool shed sure. and lock it up yeah. when they can, it can help them be effective. No question. So we'll, we will definitely see moving forward how that evolves. Uh, let's get a, some comments from our panel here before we shift topics really quickly. Uh, do you have any questions for Colin? Yeah, um, Colin, I thought it was... Uh... Really interesting that you mentioned, I guess, uh, the Chinese counterterrorism model. I mean, we've had, I guess, the global war on terror for the better part of two decades now. And I'm curious to know that, in your opinion as an expert uh, in this sort of field, uh, which model do you think, which model or approach do you think is more effective? I guess the more Chinese authoritarian model or maybe a U.S. approach? 
Yeah. So, you know, what I'm concerned about is that other countries look at what China's doing and see, uh, see it as attractive. Uh, and so in the piece, I talk about uh, a couple of things. One, how the international community has largely been mute um, on the repression of the Uyghurs, even other Islamic countries like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan that you might think would be adamant about speaking out. And, and they haven't been, right? So clearly they've subsumed economic interests to religious, cultural, socio, you know, social interests. Um, the United States has largely been mute, although I, I, I'm hopeful that that will change, um, that there are elements within the U.S. government that are now um, getting together to be a bit more forceful uh, in at least the language used uh, towards China with respect to their own population. But the Chinese use the sovereignty excuse to say what we do within our own borders is our business. Um, but I am concerned that other authoritarian and potentially non-authoritarian countries could see that model as attractive and that the Chinese could then go, um, and much in the same way the United States engages in security cooperation and building partner capacity, implement those types of measures in a country like Pakistan or Turkey or Egypt. Uh, and the Chinese could, could easily sell, you know, hey, here's the equipment, the surveillance equipment you need. Uh, it's effective. Look at, look at what we've done. Um, and all you have to be willing to do is completely disregard human rights, uh, right? Which I think we've seen, in, particularly in Egypt, is, it would not be an issue. The other thing I'd say is, you know, when I was at RAND, we did a study uh, of all insurgencies from the end of World War II to 2009. There were 71 in total. Um, we wrote two studies. The first was called Victory Has a Thousand Fathers, Sources of Success in Counterinsurgency. The second was called Paths to Victory, Lessons from Modern Insurgencies. And one of the things that we discovered, uh, you know, empirically, was that while we called it an iron fist approach, you know, this very kind of heavy-handed approach that the, that the Chinese favor, it can be effective in the short term, but, but more often than not, uh, that approach is myopic because you end up creating grievances that last for a really long time, um, and that, that ends up coming back to, to haunt government. So uh, the counterpoint to that, people say, well, what about Sri Lanka? Uh, they you know, pretty much followed a scorched earth approach, and they seem to have quelled the insurgency. And my response to that is, it's only been 10 years, right? Which, that, that's not a really long amount of time when you talk about an insurgency that lasted three decades, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the end of that story is yet to be written. Um, and, and, and frankly, it's, it's just not an option for the United States because that's not the way we fight. That's not the way our allies fight. Um, and we have values that are much different from uh, the Chinas and Russias of the world. I have something really, it's interesting you brought up Sri Lanka uh, because when I was doing research for, for this podcast before, I was looking at the Sri Lankan terrorist attacks. And one of the things that struck me as interesting is despite there being this long insurgency with bombings from the Tim Tigers, uh, ISIS used their own techniques and training methods that they imported instead, instead of using local talent. Uh, is that telling to how these groups can cooperate together or not so? Yeah, so I think what was interesting to me about the, the Easter attacks in Sri Lanka was, you're exactly right, ISIS kind of brought the, the methodology, the tactics, techniques, and procedures, but a country like Sri Lanka that's been in, you know, was that involved in a civil war for three, three decades, the infrastructure was there, right? So the weapons, the ammunition uh, was already there. Furthermore, the legacy of that conflict had a lot to do with why this group was able to conduct an attack even after Sri Lankan authorities were alerted that this could be coming, because the group, uh, you know, that the Tamil Tigers was so prominent that the security forces, even though they were warned about this Muslim extremist group, 
we're still totally focused on the Tamil Tigers, right? It's that legacy of conflict. Uh, I, I look at it the same way that the Turks are unable to, to do anything except for focus on the Kurds. Even as the Islamic State kind of set up these networks traversing the Turkish-Syrian border, the, it was called the Jihadi Highway for a while, right? Um, and, and some have uh, accused Erdogan of uh, complicity, but I think it's really, you know, more so than anything, um, focused on, you know, it's, it's fighting yesterday's war, mm-hmm. you know, because they've been, because the, the losses have been so significant um, and so intense that it's hard to ever look beyond that, even when a new threat emerges. I mean, we're dealing with that in this country where we're so focused on jihadi terrorism when it's clear to most people paying attention that violent white supremacy and radical right-wing extremism is a major problem in the United States. That was actually going to be my next question. Uh, in light of those recent tragedies and, and the growing realization of the threat of white national terrorism, are there similar trends that we see with international Islamic terrorism? Yeah, there's a lot. And, uh, you know, we've got a report coming out next month for the Sufan Center uh, where we're going to actually look at that. So I'll, I'll, I'll save a lot of my analysis and plug that paper. Um, but, but what I will say uh, is that, you know, for a long time, the... Uh, there was an old adage that you know jihadi terrorism was global, but you know white violent white supremacy was a domestic, a local, a parochial issue. We know that that's not true, right? After Christchurch, there were clear ties uh, to other parts of the world, including Ukraine, where uh, a group called the Azov Battalion has been recruiting violent white supremacists to come and train in Ukraine. Um, and frankly, you know that's not a new thing either. If you go back to the 1980s, uh, you had people getting out of the U.S. military and going to fight in Rhodesia to prop up the white minority government, modern day Zimbabwe. Uh, but we just would say, oh, those are mercenaries, right? They're foreign fighters, that's what they are, right? We're just using a different name for them. And I don't know why, if it's a white person, you soft pedal it. Look, we're, we're sitting here, you know, having this conversation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, really close to the Tree of Life Synagogue where Robert Bowers, uh, you know, committed that, that violent attack. And here's a guy who's on social media, you know, calling Jews the children of Satan, he owns over 20 weapons, and I just have to, you know, point out the double standard that if that guy was named Muhammad and he mentioned the word jihad once and he owned as much as a slingshot, he would have been arrested. The authorities would have found some way to roll him up or to charge him with something. But when he's a white guy, it's, well, you know, he's saying these really horrific things, but it's the First Amendment. And he owns a mini arsenal, but that's the Second Amendment. And so we're either against terrorism or we're not. I mean, as a researcher, I'm agnostic to the ideology that motivates it. I want to keep people safe. I don't care what your motivation is, what your ideology is, right? I look at, you know, my role as informing this debate that surrounds terrorism and counterterrorism, regardless of, of why these people do what they do. Um, and I think that um, that just goes to show how almost nearly impossible it, impossible it is to completely eradicate an ideology. You can't be at war with an ideology. You can't win over a certain ideology. I mean, we thought we beat Nazism in the 1930s and 40s. We didn't. It's still alive and well and very prominent. Um, so, and Nazism, like white supremacists, they don't have specific territory. So I think that um, can also parallel with um, the fact that since even though um, the Islamic State has lost a lot of territory, um, their, their ideology is what drives them. It's not the territory. It's not um, the money, the finances, and those things help. But as long as the ideology is there, they're always going to be there, and there's always a chance for them to return. So what do you do about an ideology, though? We, we talk a lot, uh, the buzzword for, for years was, um, 
you know, de-radicalization and using these like groups and techniques uh, to take people that show problematic behavior and reincorporate them back into society. And, but that's proven a mixed bag, uh, you know, not set forward, not always working. So how do we confront this, particularly within our own com- country and our own legacy? Well, I think you start by calling it, <clears throat> calling it what it is, you know, begin with, I mean, Collins, as Collins already pointed out, you know, we have fought a war on terrorism for going on two decades now, even though that is, it is a concept, but yeah, and that concept is very broad and it can mean a variety of different groups, but we're not willing to call it out when it's in our own backyard, you know, if we're going to have this big, broad definition of terrorism and fight this one, this concept, you know, why can't we, you know, call it out when we see it here? And until we do that, I feel like it's going to be hard for us to like even come up with a game plan for addressing it. You know, we're not even willing to call it what it is. Um, how are we going to have a program that can de-radicalize people if we're not going to identify in the first place? That is true. Within the United States, one of the distinctions between a shooting and a terrorist attack domestically has been whether bombs have been involved. Uh, should we like expand that definition? I, I, I mean, I guess, actually, we're kind of all agreeing that we should expand that definition. That is a good question. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, we say, like, oh, you need to label it terrorism. Oh, we've been doing this for two decades. But a lot of the techniques that we've used to fight terrorism abroad, we've done without having to worry about, you know, the Constitution, without having to worry about individual rights and privacy. How, how do we bridge that gap um, besides magical thinking that, oh, we don't have to do that. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, one, one start would be you know, trying to think in creative ways about how we designate domestic terror groups similar to the way we de- designate groups like Al-Qaeda, right? Because if you're able to kind of come up with the, the authorities, the laws, and the policies that you need, that expands you know, security forces and, and, and law enforcement's toolbox, uh, and, and it doesn't have to always be kinetic. Then you can seize and freeze assets. Uh, then you can prevent people from traveling. Then you can prevent people from communicating. Uh, then you can monitor them, right? And so uh, I think that's a discussion that's probably taking place right now within the U.S. government. It's going to be a slow one, probably slower than a lot of us would like. Um, and it often gets kind of jumbled up with uh, other debates that it overlaps with, such as gun control, right? And then and, and we all know uh, that that's uh, something that's made very little progress, right? And it's highly politicized in this country. So it's not easy, but uh, you know I think it's incumbent upon lawmakers uh, I've been called to testify before Congress three times in the last year and a half, all on jihadi terrorism. Where are the hearings on the threat of violent white supremacy that we can see from the data is clearly a threat, right? And everyone wants to get into this, you know, argument over which is a bigger threat. Can't they both be threats? Can't, can't you know? So, and, and I think we're also, um, you know, we need to be kind of anticipating what's coming down the pike, right? What other kinds of ideologies uh, could be motivating terrorism in the future? You've already got this kind of incel movement, um, which is strange on a number of levels. Um, you know, we could see a resurgence of kind of eco-terrorism, which is, you know, some would consider left-wing terrorism. Uh, I think about the, the, the movement in Europe right now, particularly in Germany, to, uh, you know, sound the alarm on climate change. Could someone resort to violence or vandalism to bring greater attention to that cause? It's certainly possible. What about uh, the way emerging technologies uh, motivate people? You could see a kind of reversion to the neo-Luddite uh, ideology that Ted Kaczynski favored, uh, particularly if artificial intelligence and automation start taking uh, large numbers of jobs away, right? Where people could, there could be a backlash against technology. So there's all sorts of things under the sun that could motivate people uh, to engage in acts of violence. 
uh, political violence that's ideologically motivated. Whenever I teach classes on terrorism, that's my fundamental, that's my kind of baseline. We don't need to get creative and cute with all these definitions. You know, we can, we can keep it at that and everyone can understand what that is. Um, so I have a question. It's going back um, more towards um, the Islamic State side of the um, discussion we're having, but um, I, I, almost everyone agrees that um, it's like the general consensus that you know, ISIS, yeah, their lack of territory um, is basically a negative for them. And oh, the, uh, the Islamic State's gone. Like it's they're eradicated. But um, I was recently reading a Rand report um, which stated that the positives of the Islamic State not having um, any territory and um, how that plays into um, them kind of gaining more money. Um, they have more opportunity to, um, they don't have to uh, kind of service a population sure. and um, stuff like that. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any comments. Yeah, so I was one of the authors of that, that report. Um, lead Perfect. author was, was Patrick Johnson, who's, you know, uh, close friend of mine and you know really one of the best out there on this topic uh, yeah so you know what we talked about in essence was we're always so focused on the group's credits right how much money they're bringing in how they're bringing it in what they're you know we're, we're not as focused on the group's debits so what they would spend their money on and without this large state you know to have to service schools hospitals fighter salaries right they've got a lot more money left over um, and so um, you know, at their peak, I think they ruled territory this, the size of Great Britain. So without that, you know, and given the money that they earned over the last several years from oil, extortion, antiquities trafficking, you name it, uh, they've got more than enough money for a, a rainy day fund, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to kind of fund and finance this low-level guerrilla insurgency in and around parts of Iraq and Syria, in my opinion, for the better part of the next decade, right? Um, and so, th and that's if they don't even bring any new money in. And we know that they put their money at work, um, that through cutouts and proxies uh, and front companies that, that, that money's making money, it's being laundered and it's probably, you know, uh, bringing them returns. Kind of going off of the disintegration of, I guess, what we could call the physical Islamic State as what they describe themselves as like holding a territory and people uh, what do you kind of where do you kind of see it going as that they've disintegrated and now there are all these fighters a lot have uh, been flooding back into Europe are a lot of them looking for more ungoverned spaces or are they going to bring what they know home and apply it uh, to like a lot of Western countries yeah so we really haven't seen the influx and uh, returning foreign fighters that we expected which is a good thing I think there's a couple of reasons for that uh, one a lot of these guys are dead uh, we actually killed quite a number of them in the you know final onslaught two you know a decent amount are probably worried about returning home because they're worried about just being thrown back in jail it's difficult to surreptitiously return to a country like France right um, especially when French authorities or the Germans or whoever are on high alert. So my sense is that a fair number of individuals are hiding out in what I would call third-party countries, right, and laying low, um, whether that's Turkey, potentially the Balkans, parts of North Africa. Uh, another probably not insignificant portion of fighters are going to go and find new fights, right, just as jihadists have done over the last several decades, right, when the, the fight against the Soviets was over, uh, fighters relocated to Sudan, right, and then kind of uh, traveled all over the world. That's how Al Qaeda established its global footprint to begin with. 
Um, and so you could see fighters making their way to conflicts in Libya, conflicts in, as you mentioned, you call them ungoverned spaces. I'm a bigger fan of the term alternatively governed spaces. I don't think any spaces are truly ungoverned. I think they're governed. We just don't recognize the form of governance, governance and we don't like who's governing them. Um, you know, and so uh, where civil wars persist, they'll, they'll, in a very parasitic fashion, leech onto those. Um, and, and that's how they'll kind of continue uh, into the next iteration. And I think we'll be talking about ISIS for, uh, for years to come. I don't think we'll ever quite see a caliphate again, and I, ho I hope not. Uh, I just don't think, you know, the international community, whatever that is, if you can describe that as a monolith, would allow that again, given what we know happened the first time how brutal and, and violent IS grew to be. Uh, but you could very well see the Islamic State reinforcing kind of civil wars and insurgencies uh, in, in various failed states throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and, and plenty of other places too. All right. Uh, that's our time. Uh, thank you, Colin, for coming on. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more uh, about his thoughts on ISIS, he's got new publications coming out. Uh, again, I'm going to plug his book, uh, After the Caliphate, available online and uh thank you for listening to this first episode of the ridgeway security hour uh smash that like and subscribe button on your favorite podcast app and looking to hear from you guys next month